Great to have you with us this morning. Um, yeah, sorry for that wake-up call. Your ears okay? Three, four days, they'll be fine again. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be hearing just as you used to. Hey, great to, to be together this morning. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're going, we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we're actually actually making quite a cracking pace. I I do predict that before the end of the year, we're going to we're going to finish up. Um, we'll be we'll be finishing up with the Easter message right around Christmas time, um, which is actually more fitting than most of us might might think. Uh, today, however, we're going a little bit topical. Reason being. Um, we have uh, Graham Can, who many of you may recall. He spoke at our 412 a couple of years ago. And uh, Graham's out at our Hurstbridge campus um, this morning. Uh, next week, though, he's going to be here. And so we've had to go topical just to fit in with Graham Can. So next week, Graham's going to be here. He's just written a book, actually, called When the Tiger Roars. And uh, let, me, let me just tell you a little bit about it. He's, he's not going to do readings from the book next week, but, but he will be talking about some of the things that he has written about in, in the book. It's, a, it's an allegory he's written, and uh, he's created a, a village, the people called Sampa. And he talks a little bit about the changes in the village of this people called Sampa, this particular people group. For centuries, they have lived without fear. Can you imagine living without fear? The people of Sampa have for centuries lived without fear because of their belief in an ancient covenant. But the world is changing and a new generation wants to free itself from what they see as a quaint myth and protect themselves from a dangerous world that threatens their community. The author, Graham, invites you, the reader, to explore the origins of fear and its impact on both individual lives and whole communities as you immerse yourself in the lives and the experiences of a people called the Sampians. So he'll be um, making that book available um, next week as, as well, but he'll be talking about what he believes are two keys uh, for, for the Christian life. He's going to be talking about God's redemptive activity in our lives, and he's going to be talking about God's healing activity in our lives as well, and particularly healing from um, hurts, from brokenness, and, um, and talking about how to be free from fear. And so kind of a little bit of a prelude to, to what he's going to share with you in the, in the book as well. So this morning, um, I thought... Oh, Graham's written a story. I've never written a story, but I know of some great stories. And, and I thought I would share one that's just very much captured, captured my attention this week as, as I've been doing my particular readings. Um, you've all looked at the book of Isaiah, the prophet of Isaiah. Um, he's, he's said to be, um, to, to Hebrew, what what Shakespeare was to English. His command of the Hebrew language was, was quite remarkable. It's probably why um, many of us have highlighted favourite verses throughout the book of Isaiah. It's a remarkable book, and, and it's written in a remarkable way. The prophet Isaiah, uh, well, a little bit like Elijah and Elisha, uh, saw the hand of God do some many, many miraculous things. And I don't know if you know of all of them, but... but 
Isaiah fulfilled perhaps two offices, and he lived in something of a golden era, a golden age. He was both prophet, we know that from his book, but he was also fulfilling something of a priestly role as, as well. His time was around the same time as Hezekiah, a king like like none other. They said of Hezekiah that there'd be nobody like him beforehand and nobody after him. I'm thinking even like the great King Josiah. That's a pretty remarkable statement. Hezekiah was an outstanding king. And together, almost like the, the terrific trio, Hezekiah, Isaiah and Micah ruled and governed and led Israel through a fairly difficult time. It was the, the days of the divided kingdom. It was easy to look back to the golden age of David and Solomon and kind of say, wow, we'll never be like that again. I mean, that, that was amazing. The, king, the kingdom of Israel was never as large as it was under Solomon. And it was easy as a divided kingdom to look back and kind of say, oh, for the good old days. But Isaiah reigned in a particular time where God was doing something remarkable. Yes, if you look through the book of Kings, you, you flick and you think, evil king, evil king, evil king. Hmm, good king-ish. No, he went evil. Evil king, evil king, evil king. Well, good-ish. Huh, he went evil. Evil king, evil king. And then you eventually come to Hezekiah. Hezekiah just stands out. He's, he's pretty remarkable amongst the kings and between him and Isaiah and Micah, they oversaw a pretty remarkable time. But going back to, back to Isaiah for a moment, he had, you know, he's, he probably had people writing for him. And I imagine that he too had, had little books where he took notes. And I imagine in one of those books, he pondered for some time a word that God had given him, a remarkable word. You could read it in chapter 49 of Isaiah and, and verse 6, but this word began with, it is too small a thing. It is too small a thing. Those words began a rather remarkable promise for Isaiah. It is too small a thing, dot, 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 and and. And that's where I imagine Isaiah perhaps looked again and again and again at the word that God had given him and actually wondered more than once, is this possible? Is this true? What could this, what could this mean? Now, Isaiah had seen some pretty miraculous things go down. He could, he could look back to back to that day where he had a very, very difficult word to deliver to King Hezekiah. Basically, Hezekiah was ill, he was on his deathbed, and his friend Isaiah came into him and, and said, my dear friend, I'm sorry, I, I would love to have other news, but the truth is, you need to get your house in order. You need to get your house in order. It was around the 14th, 15th year of of Hezekiah's reign. They had just come through the most remarkable battle, and now here was Hezekiah on his deathbed battling for his life. Isaiah comes in and he says, get your house in order. I mean, he probably would have loved to have any other word but that one. Hezekiah turns over in his bed and he just stares at the war and begins weeping and says, but God, I've served you so faithfully. 
And he had. When, when Hezekiah came to, the, came to the throne at just a young 25 years of age, one of the first things he did was, was dust off the temple. The doors were closed and rotten. He opened up the doors of the temple again. He, he decorated them with gold. He, he restored the temple. He restored the priesthood. There had been no operating priests in Israel. And he led the entire nation, including the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, to celebrate the Passover once again. He united the entire nation. He had been a faithful king. And now this, was it to end like this? And God saw his penitent heart and he, and he could see how much he longed for him. And as Isaiah was leaving the palace, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and says, go back. I'm going to give your friend Hezekiah another 15 years. I imagine that would have been one of the most hasty turnarounds you've ever seen as, as Isaiah runs back up to the palatial bedroom and he says, it's all right, God's heard your prayer. He's already answered even before I left the house. He's going to give you another 15 years. Now, Hezekiah could hardly believe that. And here's where the most amazing miracle takes place. And he says, and he's going to give you a sign. Okay? You know, on the, stair, the stairway of, of Ahaz, you know how the, as the sun is setting, the, the, the shadow goes down the stairs? As a sign, you choose. Would you like to, the shadow to retreat or would you like it to advance? Ten steps, your call. Hezekiah thinks, well, you know what? It's, it's a pretty easy thing for the, for the shadow to advance, isn't it? Ten steps. I mean, that's just kind of like the, the, the sun setting faster. No, what would be a real sign, what would be a real miracle would be for the sun to actually retreat ten steps. And so there together, Isaiah and Hezekiah stand on the balcony and watch on the stairway of Ahaz, the sun actually retreat back up the stairs 10 steps. Nothing like that had ever been seen before. It was an incredible miracle. And it was a remarkable sign that God had indeed answered Hezekiah's prayer that Isaiah was doing a wonderful, a wonderful new thing. That, interestingly, was just on the back of a, of a re rather remarkable victory. There had been 14 good years of rain under Hezekiah. Things were, were starting to almost look like the old days. It was pretty remarkable. Uh, Israel, that was a kind of a different issue. <laughs> they certainly were not obeying God's commands. But Judah, under the rule of Hezekiah, things were going really well. As I said before, they celebrated the Passover again. The priesthood had been recommissioned. The temple was open and, and God had blessed. They had basically removed themselves from the rule of the Assyrians. They were no longer paying a, a tribute to Sennacherib. And then not only that, they'd pushed the Philistines back again. They had reclaimed huge amounts of, of land. This was kind of a little bit of a, a golden era. So it was quite a surprise when, when Joah, Eliakim, and, and Shebna all returned from the wall 
up by the aqueduct in the upper pool to Hezekiah's room and gave a report of how Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God, was under siege. If not literally under siege by an army as yet, under siege of fear. And people were afraid. So Hezekiah would have said, okay, give it to me. He didn't want to go out to the wall himself and and honour the enemy with his presence. But he had his officials there, his three faithful officials, and they gathered around him and they basically said, it's bad. It's bad. Firstly, there was intimidation. Um, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander, along with a large army. And there they had gathered by the upper wall, near the aqueduct, near the upper pool. There they had gathered outside, and basically they had heralds yelling to not only the, the officials who were there, but all the people along the wall, everyone who had, had gathered there to hear. There was the intimidation of the army, but there was also the propaganda. They yelled out, all right, who's going to help you? Do you think the Egyptians are going to come to your aid on this occasion? I'll tell you what the Egyptians are like, and here's a real picture. They're like a broken reed that you're using as a staff, but it simply pierces your hand. Everybody who relies on Egypt, that's what it's like. You think Egypt is going to help you? No, Egypt is not going to help you. So... What is your king, Hezekiah, telling you? Do you think God is going to help you? Do you think that God is going to to somehow save you? Well, answer this if that's the case. The gods of the other nations haven't saved anyone else. Uh, Look, look at what we've been doing. Our spread, our reign is like, like paint spilt over a map. We're taking just about everything that we touch. The gods of other nations aren't protecting them. What makes you think that your God is any different? You think your God is going to help you? No, not at all. We've already taken all of the fortified cities in Judah, and now we will take you. Why? Because your God has sent us. Wow. The propaganda. Can you imagine Joah? Elikim, Shebna, reporting to Hezekiah, this is what they were saying at the wall. And I've got to tell you, it was pretty convincing. Worse, they weren't just speaking to us in Aramaic, they were speaking our native Hebrew. Everybody along the wall was hearing it. We told them, speak to us in Aramaic. But they said, no. This message isn't just for you and Hezekiah. We're going to speak to you in Hebrew because this message is for everyone along the wall. And then, Hezekiah, then came the threats. They basically said, once we take siege of this city, everybody is going to be eating their own excrement and drinking their own urine. You could just see fear in the faces of people. The intimidation, the propaganda the threats, and then almost an invitation. Just give it up. Just surrender with this particular phrase, 
and it just seemed to suck life out of the lungs of everyone. Choose life, not death. Open up your gates. Come out to us. Come. We will take you to a land that is just like the land you're in. A land where there is, there is wheat and a land where there is wine and vineyards and olive trees and figs. Everyone will have their own well to drink from. This invitation to choose life and to come with them. It was kind of tempting to think that somehow life could be better under their rule. Essentially, the message was this. You're no different to the other nations that we've conquered. Don't think you're different. And you know what? That message is the same message that Satan whispers to you and I and our church every single moment of every single day. I'll just stop that story for a moment and, and let's just come into that part of understanding what God is saying from what he's said. This is where the Bible gets prophetic. What is God saying from what God has said? We know that the enemy loves to parade around like trophies everything in this world that he has conquered. Just like the Assyrian army, he loves to boast about, look what I did here. Look what I did there. Look what I've done to your friend. Look what I've done to your family member. Look what I've done to your workmate. Look what I've done in the community. Look what I did to this nation. Look what I did to that nation. Look what I did to this church. Look what I did to that church. Look what I have done. It's a classic strategy. The enemy always does it. He takes his like little trophies, his little momentary, little temporary victories, and he holds them up and he says, now what makes you think you're any different? You're just the same. Look what I did to them. What makes you think you're different? And then he loves to invite us into a treaty. No, we might call it compromise. He loves to invite us into a little moment where, do you know what? <laughs> you've given everything for God, haven't you? You've tried the Christian life. You've, you've prayed the prayers. You've done the courses. Look, you've, you've attended church all of your life. What actually is different about you than other people in the world whom I have conquered? Not much. Give it up. Give it up. Come out of your fortress. Come out. Come and just come and join me. I'll take you off to another land. It can't be any worse under my rule, can it? And so the enemy loves to taunt and he loves to offer a compromise to you and to I and to, to kind of say, you've just expected too much. That's where your pain's coming from. Too higher expectations. You thought you were different, didn't you? But you're not. You're not. And that was the same message that the Israelites were hearing on the walls of Jerusalem and that Joah, Eliakim, and Shebna were reporting to Hezekiah. 
Well, they tore their clothes in grief as as an expression of, of great torment. And they did what we should always do when we feel besieged, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel hopeless, when we feel like we are maybe even succumbing to the taunts of the enemy. They turned to God. They turned to God in prayer. In actual fact, later on, Sennacherib would write a letter recording much of the same sort of taunt that had just been yelled from the, from the bottom of the wall. He would re- write a letter and he would send that to Hezekiah and Hezekiah would receive the letter and it was the same old, same old, same old. But he did something very, very special. He took that letter, tore his clothes and he went into the temple of God. And I love this. He spread the letter before God. Have you ever received a, a letter that has that just really thrown you? Might have been one of those ones with a little clear window in it. And it was just a bill that you were not expecting. <laughs> and you've looked at that bill and you've thought, surely this is a mistake. Surely this can't be. I don't know how I'm going to do it, God. Maybe it was a Maybe it was a letter from a friend or someone and you just were not expecting this. They've been offended, they've been hurt or something like that. And, and you look at that and you think, I have a, I had no, what have I done? I had no idea this letter was coming. It could be a letter with a medical, a medical letterhead on it. And the report on this particular letter, it's a little bit like the news that Hezekiah was receiving on his deathbed. But there it is in print. There it is. A diagnosis you don't want to hear, but there it is. In cold black ink. And it just feels overwhelming. Words of discouragement, words that are difficult to hear, words that we don't know what to do with in in this life, they're more common than we might think. But here's a great example of what to do with those letters. Spread them out before God and drop to your knees and and, and just say, well, this this letter is to me, but it's not really to me. It's to you, God, isn't it? This is not my problem, is it? This is your problem. And to spread it out before God and, and then to come before him and to plead before him and say, God, I need you. And that's exactly what they did in this occasion. They turned to God Hezekiah spread the letter out before God. He sent news, tell Isaiah, I need to see him immediately. And they prayed. And the crux of Hezekiah's prayer was this. They had just heard this taunt. We have just taken over all the other nations. We have taken their precious little gods and we've burnt them. How are you different? And here's Hezekiah's prayer. It's true. It's true. They have conquered the other nations. And they did burn their gods. Why? Because they were no gods at all. 
You see, we are different because you are different. We are different because you are different. And when the enemy comes to you and to I and he taunts us and he says, how are you different? In this way, in the most important way, we are different because our God is different. And that is the game changer. You are different because your God is different. I am different because my God is different. We are different because our God is different. And then Hezekiah says, oh God, we know you're different. Now show the world your splendor. That's a great way, isn't it, to tackle your letter. Oh God, what makes my circumstances different? What makes this moment different? What makes this situation redeemable is you are different and I serve you. So now you hear what is said in the letter. You hear what the enemy is, is saying. You hear the taunts of my enemy, my accuser. You hear all of that. But now I invite you to show the world your splendor. Show the world your glory. Show the world that you are different. And God hears and he turns to them. Hezekiah says, look at us. Open your eyes and look at us. Open up your ears and hear our prayer. They turn to God and now God turns to them. And he says, I have heard you. That letter is not addressed to you. It's addressed to me. I've heard your prayer and, and they are not taunting you. They are taunting me. The letter that you have there has got my name on it and I hear it and I take issue with that and I will deal with it and deal with it he did. That very night, an angel of the Lord came over the Assyrian army and 185,000 of them were killed. Sennacherib, seeing that he basically doesn't have an army anymore, turns and heads home to Nineveh, where in time, as he is worshipping in his own little temple, two of his sons come in and kill him, just as God prophesied. The taunt before you is not addressed to you. It's addressed to me, says God. And I take issue with it. I'll deal with it. And God is very able. He is very able to deal with those things that are addressed to him. He goes on and he gives this beautiful promise to Hezekiah and to Judah, to Jerusalem. He says the sign that, that those who had been struck down and the inevitable return to Nineveh of Sennacherib, the sign that this was my hand and my doing is this. He says in 2 Kings 19, 29 to 30, this year you will eat what grows itself. 
And in the second year, what springs up from that? But in the third year, sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat their fruit. For once more, a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. I wonder if that's a word for us as a church in this season as well. What is God saying through what he said? This year, you will eat what grows itself. Next year, what springs forth from that? But in the third year, sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. It was a remarkable time. And so perhaps as Isaiah now, having joined Hezekiah in that momentous occasion, that wonderful victory, perhaps Isaiah had more than just a little reason to believe that the words that were now written to him would also come true. It is too small a thing. The message started, Isaiah 49.6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to just restore the tribes of Judah. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant and just bring back those of Israel that I have elected to keep. No, all of that, as good as it might be, to bring back those from Israel, to restore the tribes of Judah, as good as that might be, it's too small a thing. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Had anything like that ever been said to a prophet of Israel? It is too small a thing. You are my messenger. I have sent you. And yes, I've sent you to Judah. And yes, you're going to restore the tribes. I've sent you to Israel and those elect I will bring back. But that's too small a thing. Look up. Look beyond. I'm going to do something so much more than what you are thinking here. I want to make you a light to the Gentiles as well. I want my salvation to reach to the very ends of the earth. And I wonder if that's a promise for us as well. It certainly had a double fulfillment. Isaiah was the original servant to whom God spoke. But we also know, as prophecy can have a double fulfillment, this was also referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He too was the servant. He too fulfilled Isaiah's prophecies in ways that Isaiah never could have done. And of course, Christ's body is his church. And so rightly, in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, when Paul is explaining this wonderful mystery of how God is, is now going to the Gentiles as well, what does he quote? He quotes Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled not only in his lifetime in ways he could never have expected, but beyond his lifetime in ways 
truly he could never have imagined. Here is the gospel going to the ends of the earth and Paul picks up on that and he says, you are to be a light to the Gentiles. My servant will do it. And we, the body of Christ, the church of God, are that servant. And we today are fulfilling that prophecy in ways Isaiah would never have imagined. Dorothy Woodward felt very, very much that her three, four-day-old grandson needed to be adopted by a Christian family. And, well, this is going back a ways, but she had identified through the Melbourne City Mission a, a, particular, a particular ministry that, that brought in um, young women who had usually had babies out of wedlock, and they would help the mother through that process and then place the, the babies with usually a Christian family. Um, Matron Kylie, Sister Kylie, I think she was called, oversaw much of that and a very, very prayerful woman. She would pray over each of the children and make sure that as far as she could understand, this was the very, very best placement possible for that, for that young child. She had a number of you know, Christian, Christian families on a little bit of a list that were waiting for, to adopt children and, and then through the courts it would all be made legal and so forth. Well, some 25 years would pass since that, that adoption. And she was sitting in a lounge room with, with her family and her daughter, Julie, who had had the baby. And one by one, a, a letter was being passed around. And the, the letter was, was from, well, was from her Andrew. Andrew was the name of the baby that was adopted 25 years earlier. And as she read the letter, she realized <laughs> the address on this is the Bible College of Victoria. And it told a story about Andrew understanding that he'd been adopted and, and looking now to, to just connect with his parents if there'd been a mistake, please ignore this letter, and I apologize for that. But the purpose of the letter is to bring you some comfort, to thank you, to thank you for adopting me out those many years ago and to tell you that it is all going well. To say that I have married, I'm studying to become a pastor at the Bible College of Victoria, and we actually now have a child of our own. We just want you to know it went well. And if you ever offered up prayers, those prayers had been answered. And tears just streamed down her face as she, she realized what this letter was. And she passed it to the next member of the family who would just quietly read the letter, burst into tears, and passed it to the next member of the family who would quietly read the letter and burst into tears, and, and so on and so forth. But, but this made sense to Dorothy because she had had a dream just a couple of months earlier. In her dream, there was a knock on the door and she went and she answered the door and standing at the door was this grown man 
But somehow she knew this was Andrew, the baby that had been adopted, her grandson that had been adopted out some 25 years earlier. So she had sensed that God was somehow preparing her to meet Andrew and and as such, she told her daughter, Julie, I think somehow you need to get ready. So it wasn't an entire surprise that this letter was now being passed around the family and as the tears just poured with gratitude for what God had done, she realised that it was too little thing for her son to just go to a good, a good Christian family. God had done so much more, immeasurably more than she could have ever asked or imagined. And that was the very verse Ephesians 3.20, that came to mind. So when she met me, probably within that same year, and realised that whilst the birth name Andrew had been changed at adoption to Stuart, I still remember her just holding my hands and staring into my eyes and just tears streaming down her face She said, oh, God has done immeasurably more than I could have ever asked or imagined. Who would have thought? And she just kept staring at me and then staring at Bronwyn and then staring at our little baby Daniel. (laughs) And she just was overwhelmed with the fact that God had done so much more. That's our God. That's our God. He loves to do so much more. So if I can speak to you just individually for a moment, whatever it is that you're facing, whatever, whatever threats that have besieged you at the moment, that have come against you, that have just caused you to be stricken with fear and to feel like, what hope is there? You serve a God who can do so much more than you could ever ask or imagine. And if I can speak to us now as a church, maybe there has been a moment where we have felt besieged by fear. What makes us different? (laughs) We've heard all of the taunts of the enemy and we may have felt here is a moment where I am just frozen with fear. Like, how? How can we ever move on from here? I want to remind us all, we serve a God who wants so much more for us. I I truly hope that that you're making good use of of this book, Five Things to Pray For. If you're like us, sometimes you you skip a chapter, but but don't let that stop you. Don't get frozen there. Don't stop. Uh, We had one week where we just prayed two chapters each night just just as a little bit of catch-up. Because you may have gotten out of routine or something, please don't stop praying. Because when we turn to God, he turns to us. When we pray, he hears, he sees, and he answers. And he has so much more 
in mind for us than what we're even asking in this little book. He hopes to do so much more than we could ever ask or possibly imagine. Do you believe that? Do you? I do. A God of so much more. It is too small a thing for him to just answer every single prayer in this book for us as a church. That is too small a thing. We're aiming too low. Our sights, we're not looking far enough ahead. Will you believe with me? Will you step out in faith and trust that the taunts of the enemy are not directed at us, they're directed at God? That he will address those taunts. And he loves to answer our every prayer. And he will do more than we could ever ask or imagine, so much more. In faith, will you believe with us as a leadership that that is true? Will you trust God that he's going to do it? That the fruitfulness that was promised to to Judah and Hezekiah is nothing compared to the fruit that he wants to produce in us for his glory so that his splendor will be known throughout the world. It's true, people. It's true. There is no limit to what God wants to do And he can do more than we ever ask or imagine. And I think if I just want to leave you with just a few words this morning, it is this, so much more. It is too little thing, whatever it is that you are asking at the minute. I'm so glad you're praying it. I'm so glad you're asking it, but it is too small a thing. God wants to do, get it, so much more. Let's say that together. It's too small a thing. He wants to do so much more. That's beautiful. Now let's say that in faith. He wants to do so much more. Let's say it like we really believe it. He wants to do so much more. Oh, that was our African-American moment. Amen. Amen. It is too small a thing for him to simply answer every prayer in this book. He is going to do, believe it, he's going to do so much more. So if you just see this sitting on your dining room table, if you just see this sitting, sitting on a side table, on your bedside table, on the coffee table in your lounge room, wherever it is in your house, on your desk at work, in the car, when you see it, remember, God is promising to do so much more. He wants to not just restore us as a church gather together the tribes of Judah, gather together the campuses, we might say, um, bring, bring back those that he's elected to, from Israel, to, to bring back the, those he's elected to, to be a part of our fellowship. That's, that's, that's nice, but it's too small a thing. It's just too small a thing. He wants to do so much more. Like Isaiah, he wants us to be a light to the Gentiles. He wants his salvation to go to the very ends of the earth. We thought we were perhaps a little bit of a missional church before. We ain't seen nothing yet. He wants to do so much more, so much more. And I believe that's his invitation for us this morning. These are great stories but he's still writing one at the moment. It won't make scripture, not this side of heaven, 
but it will be a part of the testimony to his glory when we're joined together in heaven. And I do believe with all praise to God, soli deo gloria, we will declare, oh God, <laughs> we look back to 2019 and now we realise <laughs> it was too small a thing, wasn't it? All that we were praying and asking, too small a thing. You wanted to do so much more. Why don't we stand and pray? Band, please come up to lead us in our closing song. Heavenly Father, we're humbled by your word. It speaks to us week after week after week. But as we ask the question, what are you saying through what you have said? You are reminding us that you have never abandoned your people. Whenever they would turn to you, you turn to them. And we're turning to you this morning. Oh, God, we love you. We adore you. We really do. We have heard the threats of the enemy. We, we have read the taunts. But they're not addressed to us. They're addressed to you. And now we ask that you answer. And our prayer is, Lord, that, that you would, as we abide in you, bear forth much fruit to your glory. It's our vision statement. As abiding disciples of Jesus Christ, we desire to live fruitful lives. We, we really do, God. We really do. So that you are seen for who you really are. That's our prayer. And I, I don't know corporately what we've asked or imagined, but I just get a sense this morning you're saying, it's good, it's good, but it's too small a thing. And so we're looking to you, Father, to fulfill all of your promises to us and to do so much more, so much more. For your glory's sake, solely Deo Gloria, that your splendor would be known to the ends of the earth. Let it be, Jesus. And all the Lord's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.